right, hello. Is everybody here? Excellent. I am just looking for Wesley, see if he's here. Wes, are you here? Let's see if I can find you. Uh, hang on one second, folks. My apologies. Um, all right, well, while I look for, for Wesley uh, Yang, who's uh, with whom we're going to talk today, um, this, uh, this is going to be a, a chat that's sort of about a couple of pieces recently, mainly like a recap of, um, of, the, uh, of Joe Biden's first year. Uh, I wrote a story recently called uh, Joe Biden's Awesome First Year, which was sort of about uh, some of the things that happened to um, to Joe Biden uh, over the course of the first year politically. And uh, part of the reason I wanted to talk with uh, Wesley Yang, who's a Super interesting writer, uh, thinker, tweeter. He's uh, the inventor of the term successor ideology. He's sort of um, a, a really a, a interesting observer of some of the lunacy online. And um, I, I just sort of wanted to work out some some theories about uh, what might have happened to the Biden administration over the course of the last year, uh, whether these are strategic problems uh, or whether these are um, sort of inherent, um, whether this was something that kind of happened to, to the Biden administration as a result of uh, strategic errors made along the line, uh, along the way. Uh, whether they were overtaken by a wing of the party um, that maybe they didn't expect. I think the rationale for picking Biden in the first place for um, for, de for Democrats, at least people within the party, was this idea that he was a moderate, that he was not going to scare away people um, within the party who, you know, maybe here he is. Uh, hang on a second. Wes, are you there? Okay, Wesley Yang is in fact here. Uh, so hopefully, I think you just got to unmute yourself. Okay, let's try that. Let's try to make next caller. No? Wes, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Hey, okay. uh, how do we do this? Do I, do I, do I, do I invite you to make you, next, like, uh, invite you to speak? I think you invite me to speak. Uh, okay, I just did that. And I am speaking. Uh, you are speaking, right? But you're you should uh, be you, you should be up on the special person level with me. Yeah. Uh, 
I was in another room, which then disappeared, and then this one went live. So anyway, I don't know how. Okay. Uh. Well, this will work, right? <laughs> Until we figure it out. Yes. Uh, it's definitely something you have to do. But uh, it's something I have to do. Yes. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to invite you to speak again. Okay. That not coming through? No, no. That's so weird. It's like the yeah. fifth time I've done it. Oh, wait, hold on. There it is. There we go. Okay. Look at that. <laughs> Outstanding. Excellent. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for... Uh, yeah. No, of course. Um, it's... it's Maybe a little confusing to explain what, what what I wanted to talk about. I mean, originally the thought originally came because I um, I saw a really interesting tweet you had a couple of weeks ago that um, I put into a piece uh, that was about how I, I don't I don't believe the people who posit a conscious conspiracy of the powerful to destroy any possibility of a cross racial alliance. You, you know the one I'm talking about. Um, yeah. But- part of the thread and i don't remember the subject of the thread yeah we'll we'll get to it it actually comes up later but but really uh i started thinking a lot um because i wrote a piece this week about um about biden's first year and you know and I, i an idea sort of formed in my mind that um what happened to the biden presidency like was it intentional or was it not it it seems like they they tried to campaign as one thing they were uh that the idea behind him as a candidate was that he was he was not uh like Kirsten Gillibrand he was he was the uh, anachronism he wasn't woke um and then all of a sudden once he got elected uh they kind of went in a different direction and like the, I guess the question is what, whether that hurt him or not. And so I went back and I looked at a lot of the things that you wrote, um, and I just thought we, we could sort of discuss some of those things. Like uh, on the day of his inauguration, you had a really interesting tweet. <laughs> you, were, you were talking about how um, the Republicans could not defeat the ins- insurrectionist faction and so lost to Trump. Corporate establishment Democrats defeated Bernie Sanders – by allying with the woke and are now stuck with continuously having to tolerate moronic drivel uh, of this order. And then you, you link to a story about like the, the privilege of Bernie Sanders mittens or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah. Remember that was, that was, that was like a good, a really strong sign of what was to come, I thought. Um, but I don't know. Do do you think, the, the Biden administration was taken over by these by this thinking, or or was it always going to happen that way? I, I think the the Biden administration is a, is a really good test case because we saw throughout the primary, and and remember, sort of Biden was the front runner from the beginning, and he, uh, but 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 everybody assumed that um, th- that it was you know entirely based upon name recognition. And uh, that, that younger, more dynamic figures within the party would uh, immediately, you know, displace him, and, and that his lead would, you know, evaporate like the morning dew. Uh, <laughs> upon first contact uh, with real competition, 
And, and, and then what we saw is that a series of people who were supposed to be the front runners, um, you know, Kamala Harris being the most, uh, you know, significant among them. Yeah, they really um, tried to sell her, like, a couple of times. Yes. And, and, um, and then, of course, you know, to me, one of the most significant, um, you know, all of them, their, their support immediately cratered. Right. And of course, you know, Kamala was the instrument of the, of the original attempt to defeat Biden through an act of cancellation. Right. Mm-hmm. So yep. Identifying him with his, uh, you know, with his anti-busing past and past and, 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 you know, sort of sticking him with the role he played in, um, you know, criminal justice. Remember how uh, she had a she had a T-shirt ready to, uh, for, uh, to be sold before the end of that debate. <laughs> right. No, with, with the, the, the ramping up of criminal justice in the 90s, I mean, the opposite of reform, the thing that we now see as, right, um, you know, that we need, now see as the kind of the basis of mass incarceration, whether it actually was or not, uh, but, but certainly the thing that represented the consensus in the 1990s, which is that the Democrats had to get tough on crime, right, and, and, mm-hmm. and be the people who, and of course we have, you know, Hillary with the super predator language and... Uh, and then if you go back to the 70s, you have, you know, you have Biden on record saying, you know, like in, in response to busing efforts, you know, I'm not going to have my child grow up in a racial drum. Right. Like this is actually <laughs> something that he said. Um, and so it is it, it is amazing at the end of this extraordinary upsurge of, you know, political enthusiasm that 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 in effect, you know, um, it's only a little bit of an exaggeration meant the kind of rise to hegemony of a kind of Black Panther slash weather underground ideology, right, being more or less kind of uh, openly endorsed uh, by, by, by major figures that, you know, that what the outcome ended up being Joe Biden, right, and and a, uh, and a, uh, and a, and a prosecutor, right, you know, in the 90s or I, I guess after the 90s. But, you know, Kamala was operating out of that tough on crime consensus as well. Um, so we so we had we had a cop and we had the person behind, you know, sort of landmark, uh, you know, um, you know, increase in policing at the at, at the end of that process, and it's kind of amazing that that happened, and it's kind of amazing at the same time that you know if you watched the, the Republican National Convention, like like what was Trump doing? What was he talking about? He spent like it seemed like seventy percent of his time talking about, you know, criminal justice reform. Sort of uh, bringing on, uh, you know, a woman to whom you know he'd offered clemency, um, and, and and so on and so forth. Although you know they also uh, you know they, they took a stand against uh, you know the violence of the uh, you know some of the protests. So you know what happened throughout that primary. You know this person that was seen as an anachronism. Um, you know younger, more dynamic. Rivals who had adopted various woke positions to, you know, position themselves at the vanguard of the party, uh, and, and the direction that was seen as the direction of the party uh, to satisfy activists and so forth. Each one of these people sort of flamed out and ended up leaving with their poll numbers in the low single digits, right? And right. So who was left standing at all of this? Like the person who was able to get up and say, do I look like a defund the police supporter? Right? Like, because people remembered his past and also because he was an old white man and therefore, you know, sort of comforting uh, in many ways. And of course, it was the it was the sort of 
normie black voters of South Carolina that delivered him the victory. Um, and so, you know, one of the most consequential pieces of reporting, in my view, as somebody who was kind of fixated on what I call successor ideology, you know, was this piece about how Elizabeth Warren had made tremendous efforts to uh, ingratiate herself with black activists and, you know, and, and, and won the black activist class and spoke their language and, you know, of course, in South Carolina was able to pick up virtually, uh, effectively no black votes, right? <laughs> sort of, you know, pointing out the enormous gulf between those who sort of purport to be, to represent the interests of actual black voters because they are part of, you know, I, I refer to them as a kind of astroturf, right, like sort of nonprofit NGO-funded activist class that has produced in the in the echo chambers that they've created a um, you know this th- like a language um, and and a worldview based around ideas that are that like strike most Americans not excluding the people on whose behalf they claim to speak as you know as from another planet right and it's it's a view of America as a kind of matrix of interlocking oppressions where the, the, the kind of straight oppress the, uh, the gay and the, the gender oppress the trans and the, the white oppress the black and the, and the white oppress all non-white people in equal measure and that everybody has a share in, you know, um, fighting against a kind of unitary force of oppression that is in the end ultimately premised upon whiteness in the end. Of course, so we have this language now that where, where every, wherever people talk about a gender binary and, and wherever, you know, wherever people talk about kind of um, cisgendered identity, they identify it as a form of whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. They identify it as something that was, you know, they, they, do it in, they do it in a kind of a new fangled historical scholarship where they claim that, like, the gender binary was invented by Western colonialists and imposed around the rest of the world. You know, it, it's all a kind of fairy tale, um, but but and and it's a thing that kind of is one of the entrenched constituencies within the Democratic Party. And to get back through very circuitous ways to your original question, all of these um, all of these different activist groups were behind Warren, right? Until it became very clear that Warren wasn't going to win and that Biden was going to win. And then there was an act, you know, everyone was disciplined and they all moved on to the Biden bandwagon. Once it showed that, like, you know, you couldn't have Kamala get up there, make a speech and cancel Biden as part of the past of the Democratic Party that we were choosing this moment in history to move beyond. Right. Because that was the framing. Like, we're still stuck with this person as a vessel, as a kind of... uh, figurehead, uh, front man, um, but, but he's going to be acquiescent, and that actually turned out to be the case, right? And he's right. not going to be acquiescent in all things, but he's going to be acquiescent in certain things that matter. And so that means, um, to them. You, know, uh, you, you know, in personnel uh, situated at certain important choke points within the federal bureaucracy, you know, we're going to give it back to the people that, you know, were in charge during Obama's second term. Um, and I'm thinking of Catherine Lehman. She was the kind of head of the Office of Civil Rights, um, you know, an assistant secretary in the Department of Justice or in the Department of Education who issued the Dear Colleague letter, 
right? Which to me is one of the, like the key vectors of a of of, of awakening of sort of taking um, you know taking an attack on what had once been a very traditional liberal value. Uh, in this case, you know, free speech and due process. You know, suggesting that these things. Um, are actually obstacles to the justice we seek in the case of like gender justice and and sexual assault and so on and and sort of arguing that in order to really protect women you know we have to uh, we have to uh, cabin in right due process like so long as so long as like somebody is allowed to know the charges against them in a you know in a campus sexual assault case so long as they're able to respond, you know, uh, you know, to ask questions of their accuser, uh, to have just the basic rudiments of fair process in the proceedings, women aren't actually protected and we actually have to move to create a kind of uh, presumption, you know, a system that moves in the direction of a kind of presumption of guilt, more or less explicitly. And, it, this, and, is, this is sort of like the, the, the campus version of the Leon Panetta uh, letter outlining how the drone program actually had due process. It just didn't have to include the person who was getting droned. Right. <laughs> right. right. No, like yeah. w- 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 it's saying that we have a kind of juridical like process within the department. Right. right? And, and we, and, and then we, we decide we can, we don't need to re- you know, rely on courts. You know, we decide ourselves. Um, and, you know, the, a very sim- similar thing happened and that person, you know, would, became very controversial, uh, uh, but was able to get back in, and she's back in. Um, that that process is going to continue, and it doesn't rise to the level of coverage, right? So, like, you know, we we you know we cover the, the, the we cover the infrastructure bill, we cover like large legislative acts that involve appropriations. Um, we don't cover this work of administrative. Uh, government uh, as it pertains to civil rights policy and 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 so and so this kind of non-electoral politics of administration is where we see ideological succession as I call it being driven like and 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 this is how so like one of the first things Biden did when he got into office was you know he issued a an executive, an executive order, order. Right, yep. a sort of like restoring, uh, you know, the pervasiveness of, you know, uh, you know, diversity training, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, white fragility, D'Angelo sort of. Uh, team you're, you're, you're talking about the one about advancing racial equity and support for undeserved communities, right? Sure, and then yep. and then a larger one, uh, you know, sort of arguing that there's going to be a whole of government effort, yeah, and that. Executive ambitious order. whole of government equity agenda. That was that was the phrase, right? And and so and and this is this is really the first time that that term, which has been kind of evanesced right into being, uh, you know, over the past few years, it was not part of the language of twenty six, uh, you know, of twenty twelve, of, of even the beginning of the second term of the Obama years. It sort of began to become part of. You know the messaging of progressive nonprofits, and then it was picked up by by, by HR directors, and then you started to hear it in corporate settings, and then it became something that you would speak about openly. You know, by, by politicians who were sort of positioning themselves as the vanguard of the party, and then you know in 2021 it actually becomes you know the the language of power. It becomes the language of the federal government, 
and then sort of people who are seeking to sort of begin the process of reallocating, you know, life-saving saving medical care, right, by race, like preferential treatment for people on the basis of their identity, um, they're able to refer to that executive order. And then, and then when the monoclonal antibodies go through, the guidance of the Food and Drug Administration, right, which is not binding, but, but is, is, is crossing a Rubicon, bringing into the government like a new language of racial preference, not just on things like college admissions and so on, right, or government contracting or other forms of affirmative action that, you know, that have been sort of grandfathered in through, um, through, through various court decisions. We have a court doctrine about what is permissible. You know, for the most part, racial classifications are suspect classifications, presumptively, although there are certain circumstances, you know, sort of narrowly tailored under which, you know, one can go ahead and favor one group on the basis of racial identity over another. We made a quantum leap, right? Like after 2021, mm-hmm. where monoclonal antibodies, like, you know, um, so that guidance came out from the FDA and then various state governments working off of that guidance established by the overall kind of like whole of government equity agenda, um, you know, enacted it. And and they created like, um, you know, in in the instance where we have to triage the distribution of monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, they have a rubric where if you have a heart condition, if you're over a certain age, you get a certain number of points. And, um, and race gave you two points. And so, you know, they, and, and so there was a piece that came out in the, uh, the Washington Free Beacon by this guy, Aaron Siberian, uh, he's a very smart young guy, uh, who was on the kind of successor LGBT, as I understand it. And he just like looks at stuff that is posted to websites. And it's out in the open, uh, you know, from like state, you know, um, you know, state uh, boards of health and commissions that basically says, you know, uh, a 64-year-old, you know, man with a heart condition who is white, right, like w- would have fewer points um, counted in his direction to get this life-saving medicine than an otherwise totally healthy 18-year-old black person. Right. And like maybe this is a kind of, you know, uh, notional thought experiment. I don't think at the moment many people like I think we have enough uh, so that we're not seeing mass numbers of, you know, older, sick white people not getting medicine in deference to healthy, young black people. But the, the, the point is, is like regardless of how much this is actually doing anything in practice, and I think in some cases it's doing things in practice. It's, it's about crossing a line. It's about sort of there's suddenly this new consensus that to go beyond the scope of what has been our understanding of to, uh, of like where affirmative action is allowed to happen and 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 and, and what we're supposed to do about it. And and the point is is that like this story is not a story. Right, like nobody is writing stories eulogizing this wonderful advance in the direction of racial progress and equity, and 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 why is nobody doing that? Right, you know, because I think there's an awareness that like 
it's politically not popular. Yeah. It's hard to defend this, right? Like on terms that are, that are a familiar part of the American political lexicon. But now you go back and you look at like, what was all of this copy pasta, right? Being blasted at everybody. What was all of this equity training? What was the purpose of it? Right. And everybody will say, oh, you just go, you roll your eyes, you know, you're subjected, um, you know, you're subjected to some lecture by some woman, right, who's going to say a bunch of insane stuff and, and you move on. But in fact, right, there was an output. There was something that we were seeking. We wanted to break past this idea. And of course, everywhere you attend one of these equity trainings, you see attacks on individualism, you see attacks on objectivity, you see attacks on the idea of rigor. These things are all sort of inherently polluted by like white supremacist ideology and thinking. That is how it is presented. And, 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 and the kind of, and, and you see especially attacks on uh, a kind of race blind approach to policy. Right. right. And, so, yeah. And I particularly want to ask about that because I remember after, after the November elections, you know, the Democrats obviously didn't do terribly well in New Jersey. They had a disaster in in Virginia, and and you tweeted this thing about how um, Democrats and aligned media institutions are choosing to both be dishonest and lose politically. Either defend the proposition that math education is the product of quote violent white supremacy and racial capitalism, or discard it. Uh, and th- there was this kind of like uh, industry-wide effort at blowing off the idea that there was something unusual going on in education. And you know, for for me, I, when I went down to Virginia and I saw that a lot of this had to do with you know a real issue involving like gifted admissions, they made a very, I thought, radical change to just get rid of testing and. Uh, institute this other policy, but they 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 were in denial that like the like, it was like the official policy was the, the deny that it was happening. Um, and why why are they doing that? Do you think? Well, I mean, you know, look in in 2020, uh, you know, in California, in addition to the foregone conclusion of the presidential race, there was also a referendum on, uh, you know, Proposition 209. And so Mm -hmm. Proposition 209, or Prop 16, which would have undone Proposition 209. So, like, you know, the the story of this is worth thinking about and and, and recounting. Like, back in 1996, or the sort of California electorate, like the California population had already undergone the kind of majority minority um, uh, transition that the country as a whole faces in the year 2043. And so, um, so there, you know, there were more non-white people than white people in California. And, but the electorate, right, was still majority white. And so sort of like white people, right, like there, there, was, there, was, a, there was a referendum to deny, um, you know, certain services to uh, undocumented immigrants, and then which, which succeeded, but then the judge annulled it. And then there, and then there was there was a you know there's I think there's nine states in the country that prohibit uh, racial preferences at, in college admissions and mm-hmm. uh, and so California is one of them and uh, and but you know the idea was okay you know we'll 
you know, th- th- this was the this was the sort of declining white electorate that did this, and we're going to wait until, you know, some point in the future we'll take another bite at the apple when the demographics have changed. And now we're at a position where the demographics have changed. You know, it's a plurality Hispanic state, in fact, um, and sort of the the drivers of the constitutional amendments that would have that would have, um, you know, a- allowed the return of racial preferences. Um, in effect, it was one sort of plurality non-white group taking things away from another non-white minority because because sort of the net beneficiaries of the policy would have been Hispanics and the net sort of and and the net sort of losers of the policy would have been Asian Americans, right? And and mm-hmm. we got a we got a sneak peek at this when you looked at the um, the admissions of the twenty twenty or the entering class of the University of California at San Francisco Medical School, where they, they sort of very proudly announced the racial demographics of the next class, and it had been radically re-engineered so that the percentage of Asian Americans admitted had gone down by, I believe, something like 40 points. Yeah. Right? So, so they're like 60% of the, the incoming class the year before, and they were like in the 20s, right, like the next year. Mm-hmm. So like a radical change. Um, and, and that sort of gave people a sense of what was intended if, if, uh, prop 16 passed. And so the, and, and of course, you know, it's a story of like all of the great and the good of California society, it's corporations, uh, you know, were behind this move, um, and, and, and people who were in favor of the move outspent those who, who were against it, you know, by a 10 to one margin, and of course, you know, um, you know, it's a, it's a plurality, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not even a plurality white state anymore. Um, but the, but the, but prop 16 lost by an even greater margin, right? Than, than, than prop 209 won in the nineties. So the demographics changed and, but, but the, but the people who represented the, the, the new demographics, you know, we're not, we're no more on the equity agenda than the old demographics, right? And so, right. And, and so, so this is sort of the last point I wanted to get to before maybe we opened it up. I thought to some other people, which was, okay, we saw in 2020 in the election, well, all, all the journalists I talked to thought it was a blip that, that uh, Trump, outperformed his 2016 numbers with every group except uh, white men, oddly <laughs> enough. And everybody's, everybody was assuming that was an anomaly. The, 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 the numbers weren't – they weren't big num- jumps. I mean, it was – I think the, the most conspicuous was a six-point jump with black men or six or seven points. Uh, but now Basically what happened in 2020 yeah. was the was the Trump's gains with every other group was was annulled by his losses with white men, white men. Exactly. Lost, right. So, right. Uh, right. Yeah, but right. now it's but now it's even more extreme. And we're we're seeing the, it like the what was a, you know, just noticeable difference last year with especially with Hispanic and Asian voters is now is now becoming like a you know almost like a deluge right of defections yes. or uh 
if they're not if they're not defecting to the Republican Party, they're a very serious threat to not vote, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, in, in your mind, what's that all about? Well, so in the years 2014 and 2019, in that five-year span, right, the group whose income rose the fastest in America were Hispanics, right? And then the group mm-hmm. whose income rose the next fastest were Asian Americans. And so the America's new diversity, its non-white, non-black immigrant population, right, um, did very well during those years. And half of those years were, were under Trump. And as, as the sort of rhetoric of equity and the understanding of what the equity agenda is becomes clear, I think it also comes clear to these groups that have done very well under the pre-equity system that like the equity system is not actually in their interests. And in the case of Asian Americans, when it comes to the educational system, where they're very strongly, uh, you know, invested in that, that is the core interest for them. Um, it's, it's more or less out there in the open. And so you have to think about that UCSF thing that I was talking about. And so the, so what the, what the prop 16 vote showed was that even when it comes to these constitutionally accepted forms of equity pursuit, right? The ones that are permitted, uh, you know, by constitutional doctrine, there just isn't support in the public for them. And there isn't support in the new non-black, non-white, diverse public for them. So there's this funny thing where we're seeing two things happening at the same time. One is that sort of there's an elite consensus that has come about through ideological succession, right? That what we have to do is we have to vastly expand the extent to which we pursue equity, right? By like giving medicines by race for so on, like vastly expand the domains in which we do it, vastly expand the explicitness which we do it, court doctrine be damned. And on the other hand... We have, um, you know, we have the groups, the non-white groups that are supposed to be a part of this new constituency that we're supposed to be integrating into this new constituency that simply don't see their interests aligned. Now, these, these groups are not, for the most part, sort of like politically articulate or, you know, sort of... Or uh, monolithic. Yeah, uh, you know, but, but, but like it's peeling off the voters and, you know, it's happening in large numbers with Hispanics. You know, the polling, you know, the polling on it uh, suggests that, you know, they may be moving toward, you know, actual parity, right, like between the parties. And, and if that were to happen, it would be a political earthquake and it would mean many of the schemes and dreams, right, of those who thought of a permanent, you know, governing majority, you know, in the Democratic Party, you know, are, are going to be thwarted. On top of it, though... In addition to there being this new con- elite consensus about vastly expanding the scope of, uh, of, of racial preferences, there's also, um, you know, a challenge, a court challenge that is on the way um, in the form of the Harvard Asian American lawsuit, which seeks, mm-hmm. you know, the end of these kinds of policies, you know, as, as, as is often stated back in 2003, 
the court had one in a series of landmark decisions saying, you know, you can, you know, affirmative action is constitutional. But, you know, but Sandra Day O'Connor, who wrote the opinion, was like, you know, in 25 years, we're not going to do this anymore. Right. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't it was just kind of like it wasn't a sunset provision, but it was kind of her statement of what he saw of what she saw in the future. And so we're we're creeping up on that moment. And there is this lawsuit that is on its way that's about to meet a 6-3 Supreme Court with sort of, you know, there's a man who sits on that court, Clarence Thomas, right? Like whose whole purpose in life um, is to is to get rid of this kind of racially conscious policy. And so there's a there's a maxing out on the one hand of, you know, of a, a racially conscious policy among all the great and good in American society. There's a continued huge unpopularity uh, for it, um, in, everywhere else in society, including, you know, among the country's most economically dynamic group of newcomers who are going to be, right, the swing voters who ultimately decide uh, the, the direction of the country. Um, and then there's a court challenge, uh, you know, headed toward, a, you know, the Supreme Court. And so the way I frame it is the following, like in the early in the mid 1980s, two things happened at the same time, which is the, the sort of the Federalist Society started, and their purpose was to like take back this court. And right around that time, there was the first conferences, uh, you know, within law schools for critical race theory, right? And so, like, you have these two separate movements that are beginning their march through institutions, and those two marches came to their fruition right around 2020. Where on the one hand, right, like the, the conservatives consolidated their control of the Supreme Court. And then on the other hand, the, the sort of the various derivatives of critical race theory, which is a kind of, you know, it was basically uh, a movement attempting to argue on behalf of much more racial race conscious policy, um, you know, uh, consolidated their grip on on the educational system, right? The teachers' unions, the, 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 uh, the, uh, but especially education like, departments and universities, education departments, but also like young people, right? Like, right, I don't know right. if, you, if you ever see these libs of TikTok, like these young, you have these green haired teachers about, you know, I'm talking about my they, them pronouns to my kindergartners and that like there's a new sensibility that is that is now pervasive among the people who staff uh, our schools. It is quite remote, right, from the sensibilities of most parents in this country, um, and and um, and so long as the country remains democratic, that's going to be a source of conflicts, right? Because yeah, see, that's the thing that's so baffling to me. Like, like did. did did all of this start because somebody thought that this was going to be the best way to kind of nail in the, the, you know, the, the potential of, you know, Obama's demographic victory. In other words, did it start as, as well, we, sh- we, we have to have a, a plan to that's specifically geared uh, to, our, to minority voters without actually talking to them, of course. Um, but or or is this just cluelessness because it's it seems like it's almost designed to be politically suicidal 
Uh, and then we'll, we'll open it up after that, but I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, no, the way I see it is there is, there is an apparatus of people who derive their livings from sort of, uh, you know, um, from there being this kind of claim that we're fighting oppression and, and that, you know, the, the world is a matrix of oppression and our specific expertise, you know, grounded in, you know, whatever ethnic studies or, you know, gender studies program. And, you know, there's, there's an entrepreneurial activity, right. To, among these people to kind of um, get consultancy fees, right? Like to create work for themselves to, uh, and, and they're the really media, good at it, you know, and the media is a partner in all of this and mm-hmm. the federal government, you know, became a huge partner of all of this as it sort of ramped up the amount of diversity training and so forth, you know, upon uh, Biden's entry into office. And, and the educational system is just like one of the areas that was kind of low hanging fruit. Right. Like, you know, you have a lot of you have a lot of people that are sort of required. Right. To get masters uh, or whatever. Uh, and then you have a lot of and then you have a lot of programs where there isn't a lot of like political diversity in the first place. And then, you know, you have a lot of sort of, um, you know, like not the top students. Right. But, but you can you can sort of like motivate them with uh, a kind of, you know, millennial passion. Right, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to, do, to do good, and so the combination of those things, um, you know, produces this echo chamber, right? And then, and and so, and the echo chamber is reinforced by the kind of ideological policing and canceling that that you know have become pervasive there, and so in their worlds, right? Like this is this is how you win, right? Like you moralize out of existence. Uh, the, you know the the things that are shocking to you, or that you can cite some study and sort of say that this is actually the reason why you know the, the progress has not been made, and and then you turn them into dogmas, and then you you know you get the HR directors and the the, the officers of student life, you know, to issue proclamations, sort of you know defining these things as microaggressions, and that's how you win in these settings. But it's very different, you know, right? Like for how you win, right, like on the, An election. Yeah. the national stage, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but what yeah. we saw with Biden is, like, Biden is this kind of, like, residual figure that can win as the kind of, you know, front man, right? And, and then we can just ride along on his coattails into government and be able to do almost everything that we would have done otherwise, you know, if, if Warren had won. The difference but, yeah, but, be, how, but how can they not see the the re-election moment? Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's 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 crazy. Uh, let's 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 see if uh, let's talk to some folks here. Is that okay with you? Yeah, yeah. All right, let's let's go with. Uh, I think that's Carl. Is that Car- yes, Carl? Yes, sir. Hey, Carl. How's it going? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm really excited. To, uh, to hear you guys having a conversation. Uh, I sort of have this theory that, uh, Matt, your work could almost be, your work for the last you know, 10, 15 years could almost be the bibliography to the development of the successor ideology. <laughs> the two of you come from such different backgrounds because you know, if you start with like the great derangement and then you document the financial fallout from the recession, and you document what happened in criminal justice and what happened in media. And I feel like, you know, this kind of magical thinking that, that comes with the successor ideology 
is what people do when they feel their position is threatened. And, you know, you, you've kind of laid that out over time. It, to me, it feels like the Tea Party of the left writ large because, you know, the powers that be feel like their position is insecure. I'm, I'm wondering if you guys see the connections between your your work in that way. I'd just love to hear you respond to that idea. Um, if I could just quickly, Wesley, there's a really interesting Swedish writer who somebody on TK turned me on to named Malcolm Kayune. I think he's, uh, he's African, but he was, he was basically talking about how, uh, a lot of the, um, sort of cancel culture episodes, if you want to call them that, uh, if you, if you look closely at what actually happens in a lot of these episodes, whether you're talking about a company like Blizzard or Netflix or, um, you know, I can't think of another one off the top of my head, but but there, it always comes with a. It's ne- it's it's almost never so much about fixing the problem, which is usually like a sexually harassing boss. Uh, it's always about let's create a department with five or six more jobs, yeah. <laughs> right? So there, I think where you feel uh, for me where I think this intersects is there's a, there's all this economic tension um, in the professional world where people are fighting for resources in ways they never had to before. Mm -hmm. And the intellectual class has to use tactics that they never had to before uh, or that they never thought to use before to try to secure employment for themselves. Uh, And, you know, in journalism, where, where you see this expressed is there ends up being a war between uh, kind of administrators, people in the guild, and like sort of non, non-reporters versus the people who actually do the job. And I, I think that's kind of the case, Wesley, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but it's probably the same in campuses uh, where you have all these, you know, sort of DEI officers and other um, another bureaucrats who didn't exist before, and the number of professors is shrinking. I don't know. What do you think, Wes? Wes, on that? Well, uh, it, you know, it goes back to this kind of you know entrepreneurial activity because you you would get out with your gender studies degree, and there wasn't much that you could do. But if you if you were part of a movement, right, uh, you know, you could create opportunities for yourselves by like making placing demands. Uh, you know, first on universities, uh, and and you know, if you looked the kind of you know racial uh, protests, because I, I you know I did this thing where I just kind of looked at all of the manifestos, and you know they they always said you know like create a new campus center with uh, right mental health people and, with a budget, and then and then so so it was very they were very clear about like their goals were to create paths for professional activists like ourselves, right? And, and, uh, to, and to create, and so that's in some sense, I think that is like the fundamental driver of successor ideology, right? Now, the question that he's getting at is this thing that like, you know, people will often speculate about and, it, you know, it, it is worth thinking about that, you know, the um, Occupy Wall Street happened, right? And, you know, like Occupy Wall Street 
you know, they did, it actually was the venue where a lot of these things like the progressive stack started to emerge. That's when, of course, you know, sort of like white men have to defer to other people to speak before them and so on. So like a lot of this kind of like ID politics were part of it, but that like, but another part of it, of course, right, was that it was a, it was a kind of, you know, it was a kind of demand, right? Like trying to hold account the 1%. Mm. And so, you know, it, it, and then the kind of the spending by the 1% and then the coverage in the media uh, of like, you know, of various terms about race and identity and so on goes vertical, right? Or like right at that point. And, and, uh, and so that is the kind of suggestion of the, of the, um, that's the kind of suggestion of the, um, you know, the thing I tweeted about, like, oh, here we have this conspiracy to disrupt, you know, sort of attempts to create, you know, sort of multi-class solidarity by, by, by dividing and ruling, right, on the basis of these woke concepts. And then where corporations are able to kind of see, like, gather to themselves, right, the role of being the moral paragons and heroes of our time, right, like by, by adopting these people that will serve as their surrogates, and who will be paid by them and who will be beholden by them, right? Now, at the right. same time, you have these surrogates who are, you know, they, they always make sure to say, you know, like Kendi will say, you know, you're not, uh, unless you oppose capitalism, you are not a, right? Like you are not a true anti-racist. And so there's this funny kind of thing where, and you see this in a lot of de- democratic po- policy as well, where they are sort of, intentionally they will take a policy that is actually a kind of like a general redistributive policy and then they will rebrand it as racial reparations right and like like thereby sort of like from the overall general electoral politics like making it both less popular and less likely to happen but but (laughs) but, but 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 on the other hand sort of like framing it in such a way that as if because there is such a like a powerful you know, because there is such a powerful, you know, um, uh, consensus around not being a racist in the society, right? Like, in some ways, like, it becomes impossible to, you know, it becomes impossible to, as a member of polite society, um, oppose it if it is successfully framed in that way, right? Right. And so it's, it's that weird combination of different... Um, uh, of different kind of like push and pull, pull factors that leads us to like want to racialize things that would be better served not being racialized, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, sorry not to interrupt, but uh, going back to Occupy Wall Street, I, I remember having the experience because it happened right around the same time as um, uh, as the foreclosure crisis was happening. Uh, and so I had to cover like in the same week space, uh, Occupy and I had to go to a foreclosure docket in Florida, uh, where I was just watching people be tossed out of their homes, like once every eight seconds or something like that. And it's two completely different populations of people. Now the, the second group of people I would bet probably voted 80% Trump later on. Um, you know, they were, they were kind of like working to middle class, ordinary, uh, Floridians. Um, you know, and then the first, the first group was very upper class. It's the white college educated people. 
who make up kind of the vanguard of the Democratic Party. And I thought, I thought to myself, if you if you ever got these people together uh, and had them start thinking about the same things, you you would have like an unstoppable political movement because there's just so, there's so much anger out there. Uh, but but this this thing that you describe is like the perfect tool to make sure that those people never talk to each other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it, it, it's basically infallible in that respect. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, you know, so there, there is this kind of weird mutual cooptation between, uh, you know, the, the woke and the powers that be. And, you know, it had to do with kind of defeating Trump and, you know, they were useful in certain ways. And, and, but like, it is like a mutual cooptation, you know, like now sort of I get reports that like energy investment firms will have like social justice scores for all of their different investments. And, you know, there are, there are questionnaires that you have to answer as an institutional investor that seem very premised upon the idea that like we don't have enough institutional investors that have serious mental health problems. Right. Like or who, don't, or who don't have like incarcerated relatives or who have not themselves been, been incarcerated. And so and like like what's happening with that? That's just like a bureaucratization. Right. Uh, uh, where certain rubrics just got adopted and they just get adopted by default. And in, in much the same way that the kind of white supremacy culture copy pasta, you know, that says like individualism, objectivity, Right, like time preference or whatever, like all these things are white supremacy culture, and it's just this fucking horseshit that like was made up by this like former physical education teacher turned right like uh, you know diversity entrepreneur named Tima Okun, who was a white person, right? Like, the name doesn't sound that way, but but he was a white person. Um, you know, uh, why why is that everywhere? Why is that being posted everywhere? And, 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 the, and the fact is, is that, like, there's really no good explanation other than just, like, path dependency. It happened to be the thing that was available. The people who do this are, in fact, mediocrities, and they don't really think for themselves uh, or come up with anything of interest. And, and so this stuff ends up everywhere. And so you have all these people having these, like, hallucinogenic experiences where they're going to work, you know, for their, for their hedge funds that, you know, invest in you know, natural gas around the world. And they're being confronted by these questionnaires that seem to be really concerned about the fact that we don't have enough criminally insane people like working <laughs> in the industry. Um, if, I, if I could just, I'll jump in and then I'll, I'll let somebody else jump on too. But I think that if you see it as a, as a democratic vote-getting strategy, if you see it as a rational argument, if you see it as a, a something that Joe Biden can get on board with that doesn't make any sense, if you see it as a very powerful way of of justifying uh, the transfer of resources that is very hard to answer um, and, and sort of has an almost like an evolutionary ability to spread because of that power. I think it makes a lot more sense. It's a, it's a, just a way of, uh, of saying, well, you know, we want a bigger slice of the pie and it's a way that works. So a lot of people use it. It doesn't really have to make any rational sense. That's, I get that, but it's it, it, it it's not an argument for for you know sort of redistribution on a on a real wide scale or in a, in a way that's fair or, fair or makes sense. Uh, I don't think. I don't know, Wes. What, what do you think about that? I, I, uh, 
you know, I think there are certain instances where you can like batten down on a, a racial framing and then you can manipulate a, a certain outcome that would actually be good for others in some cases. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, you know, as a whole, um, it, it, it's something that violates most of the public's basic moral intuitions about how government and public institutions and private institutions should function. Um, you know, for, for the most part, they should, you know, they, they should be, be fair and equitable in the original sense of the word. <laughs> they should be impartial. Uh, on the other hand, you know, here's where I agree with the woke. Like there, there is an, ex- there is an extent to which, right. Like sort of America has a specific problem with, you know, you know, with black people, right. That has to do with its history and it has a specific sort of debt and way of owing something to them. And the question is always like, well, what is owed to them? And in, in many cases it is not the integrity of institutions, sort of the basic way meritocracy functions, like, it's not those things. And to the extent that people are trying to say that it's those things, like, like the, the public resist it and the public is right to resist it. And, and, and the, the sort of the ease with which one can take that basic moral intuition that is held in common by almost everyone of all color, right? That like, you know, yeah, there has to be like monetary consideration uh, and there has to be, and there has to be, a general policy, uh, you know, that is redistributive and protective of those who, um, you know, and that actually like helps people build, right? From 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 conditions uh, of poverty and so forth. It's just it's it's really not the same, right? As saying like, oh, you know, we're going to you know reject uh, rigor, right? Or, or we're going to treat math like it's presumptively suspect, uh, and. Uh, you know, uh, like th- that, those latter claims are claims that emerge from an echo chamber. They become unfalsifiable. They become statements of faith. And, it, you know, when they are enacted, they only lead into irrationality and error. And like we, you know, we, we, we can't allow, right, like that kind of thinking to become pervasive and uh, Subjecting every you know white collar employee in America to it, right? Like is 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 um doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen, but it makes it a lot more likely that it's going to happen. And that kind of conditioning that is done, conditioning for the most part in acquiescence and conformity, because it's about like subjecting people to things and making it known to them that they don't have the freedom to speak out against it, is how we arrive at this situation where we are practicing you know, just as a matter of course, this like facially unconstitutional, you know, race-based medicine policy and nobody speaks against it, right? Except for like Stephen Miller's legal foundation and Tucker Carlson. It creates an opening for them to be the only people in society that talks about them. And when they're the only people in society talks about them, it produces this negative partisanship, right? Where like all the, you know, good people, um, you know, uh, have to then support this thing because the bad people oppose it, right? And, and, and so that's, that's the dynamic by which, you know, the woke who are producing these kind of policies are attempting to kind of win. And it, 
I am surprised at the extent to which they have been able to do that. And but like, you know, it's setting up a showdown with the Supreme Court. So, yeah, we're just going to see how that works out. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, th- thanks, Carl. I appreciate it. I, I, I just I don't see it holding for very long electorally, but um, but we'll see. Uh, all right. Let's see who's next. We got Yosarian. Um, Great name. Are you there? Yeah, thanks, Matt. <laughs> no problem. Um, so this is sort of a, a two-part question, but I think that the parts are pretty closely related. So, um, Wes, I'm, I'm, I find your your description of the successor ideology very persuasive. Um, uh, my own family background is the ancestors mostly came out of Scotland, and then like much of the Scottish diaspora, they they uh, went to Canada. Um, so technically because my father was born in Canada, I'm a Canadian citizen. So I'm always sort of keeping tabs on those two parts of the world. And in the, in the madness of, of 2020, um, I went to the trouble of getting my Canadian passport and was actually like, you know, looking at what it would take to, to get myself and my family up there. And if I, if I'm correct, you, you live in Canada, um, what it, but it, it seems looking from the outside that. Canada and Scotland are like farther ahead on the curve on the successor ideology than the United States. Um, and I, I struggle to figure out why that is and if I'm just having a perceptual error. So I'm curious to, to get your take on successor ideology in Canada and Scotland. And if you agree with that, why, why they're farther ahead. I mean, those are two countries with very different histories in the United States. Neither of them had uh, chattel slavery, for instance, and Scotland was actually effectively colonized by the English. I mean, they don't—they're not a lot of Gaelic speakers left anymore. So, anyway, that, those are my questions. Well, Canada is where the uh, land acknowledgments became big. They've, uh, apparently, they've been big here for a while, maybe up to a decade, and and, and now they've crossed over uh, the border into something that people do. And of course. You know, because Canada had, had a, I guess, a larger surviving native population, uh, and um, and and you know, I, I don't know. I just think um, it, it, wokeness seems to, you know, there are these hypotheses that it's kind of what the um, mainline Protestantism, uh, as its kind of, you know, theistic basis evanesced. You know, it turned. You know, it turned into this kind of uh, this kind of identity-based sort of ultra purist uh, leftism, and so we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of the kind of surviving, right? Like, uh, you know, puritanical traits, right? Like being routed through this politics of, uh, you know, of, of, of purity and uh, kind of like personal salvation. And, and of, uh, you know, inveighing against sinners. Uh, and, and so, you know, Canada, even more than the United States, you know, is this kind of like Anglo-Protestant, right, like themed nation. Uh, and Anglo-Protestant at a moment where kind of like Anglo-Protestantism sort of like in seeking to like annul itself is most being itself, right, or at least most being itself in its, in its, uh, in its current state of like post theistic existence. Um, so I think like, you know, it, it's, 
it's really the Anglosphere, uh, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, right? Where we, where this stuff is, is purest and where, where you don't have kind of like as much, uh, sort of, uh, you know, non-Anglo-Saxon white ethnicity to kind of like balance things out. Um, so, you know, but definitely like Canada is at the vanguard, right? Like Canada is a place where a judge, right? Like, uh, put a father in jail, right? Because he, for misgendering his, uh, you know, the, the father alleges that the son like doesn't want to be, uh, you know, like, uh, a girl or, uh, you know, sort of in his presence. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, it was a custody affair. But, like, Canada is the place that first, you know, put a father in jail <laughs> for misgendering his own son. Um, but You, you say know, that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> but but apparently that, uh, you know, that, that that's now happening in the U.S. too. So And, and so it's one of those things where um, everything that is woke in one place ends up in the other place and the rate of metabolism and uptake and universalization uh, is, is always speeding up. Uh, and, and so it's like, you know, the, whatever, whatever manufactured identity, right. You know, we have to genuflect to in Canada. Well, it's only a matter of time. It used to maybe be a few years before you had to do that in the United States. You, You know, I think now the time horizon has shrunk. So, but, so I really do think like it, it, it's all a part of the, it's all a part of the same thing because it, it travels in the same place, right? Travels through social media. And then, and then we now just have this pipeline where we, where somebody invents something on Tumblr and then like it's on WebMD, right? Like a year later. And then like, it's in like the house resolution, you know, two, four, six, three, right? Like governing, you know, language, uh, you know, the, the next year, um, and that just seems to be true everywhere that like English is spoken. Um, and, and so, you know, here we have an example of this kind of, uh, online generated thing, you know, English of course is the language of the internet around the world to some degree. Um, and then the places that are most kind of like, uh, Anglo, uh, seem to be the places that are most susceptible to, uh, you know, to being overtaken, uh, by this kind of stuff. Excellent. All right. Uh, uh, you okay for, to do a couple more, Wesley? Yeah. Yeah. I'll do a couple more. All right. Excellent. Let's, uh, Yosarian, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, and let's go to Granite Finds. Are you there? Granite, you got to unmute yourself. How's that, Matt? Yep. Good. There we go. Hey, so my question is, does the Biden administration, who do they get their advice from? And I ask that in terms of, is there like a suggestion box next to Jen Psaki's podium? Like, you just want us to send everyone a test kit? I'm like, well, that might be a good idea. It's not like, it's not like pandemics are like, haven't happened previously in recorded history. There's waves, there's peaks, there's etc. And I'm like, you don't see the summer travel season coming they didn't see the thanksgiving christmas travel season i'm like you've been there almost a year it's like you were supposed to like come come in and like fix this because the last guy trump kind of sucked at it except for vaccines so i'm like well yeah where do they get their ideas from (laughs) i mean look 
Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to have Westy on to talk about this because I, I, I'm struggling to understand um, sort of the, think, the thinking behind the scenes at the Democratic Party uh, because, um, well, in that specific instance, you know, Biden explicitly promised uh, to, you know, to, to fix the testing problem, like, right away. That was one of his priorities. And for some reason, that doesn't make any sense. He waited for a year. But the, the larger issue is, like, who who intellectually is in charge of the long-term vision of how we get elected? Uh, <laughs> and, because they, they don't it's pretty clear they don't have any plan in that direction. Um, I mean, I mean, they, they make the Keystone cops look like effective law enforcement. (laughs) Well, exactly. I mean, you know, look at the primary season in 2019, 2020, they had 28 candidates. They, there were, there was no invisible primary. Like, you know, usually there's a process by which, you know, all the key players get together and they sort of back one one candidate, but it didn't happen. They just sort of let it let the whole thing slide, um, and then they waited for Barack Obama to pick up the phone at the last minute before South Carolina. Like, there's, I don't know, Wesley. Do you see it differently than me? Because I, well, I, I yeah, I mean, Thomas Edsel did a piece uh, column pretty recently where. You know, he interviewed some, you know, Democratic strategists, like, like who, whose concern is electing Democrats. And, you know, the person pretty much, you know, put this kind of uh, NGO uh, complex on blast and, you know, was saying, in effect, this is, this is a cancer on the party and, <laughs> right. you know, is going to lead to uh, electoral defeats. Uh, and, you know, so, like, this goes back to the... Um, you know, there was recently a story about there's a couple of Silicon Valley billionaires who, you know, who really drank the Kool-Aid about about voting rights, right? And and so, you know, like voting rights, it's divisible into a few different issues, right? And like one of those issues is just kind of like partisan gerrymandering, you know, which is uh, you know a thing that like Republicans have really maxed out on. Like it was originally introduced in the 80s and 90s by by Democrats, right, in order to have sort of like minority-led districts. Um, and then, you know, it's mostly like an com- uh, incumbent preservation strategy, right? But, but you know, but, but Republicans became very uh, aggressive about it. And, and then on the other hand, and then there's these kind of like things that are called voter suppression, you know, uh, where it's sort of like, you know, Republicans are seeking electoral advantage in, in, in various ways, even though the kind of the data shows that expanding the electorate and increasing turnout, you know, doesn't necessarily help Democrats and whatever motivates them in doing it. And obviously, you know, um, it's seeking parties advantage that motivates them, you know, and restricting it to varying degrees doesn't necessarily hurt Democrats, right? Like it's, it's, it's a largely, you know, it may have some marginal effect that is, that is difficult to measure, but, um, you know, there's all these investments in it because of the, the, the legacy of voting rights and civil rights and, and so on. But, like, as a practical matter, right, like, if you're so sort of divorced from the mainstream of American life that you don't have 
any ID, right? Like, are you voting, right? And and uh, are you voting anyway? And you know, like it, it's it's a real issue. Um, but we're rolling all of these things in to the kind of you know what Trump is now doing. You know, trying to like install his people. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, in the case of a very closely contested election, it's, it's a very remote scenario in, in which, you know, the GPOP is going to steal an election and, and the Supreme Court is not going to do something about it. Right. Like it's uh, and yet you're able to roll these things all together and then you're able to, like, generate this gigantic rhetoric about like Jim Crow 2.0. Right. Like like. We had the largest turnout in American history, right, in the last election, and 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 you know tens, you know millions and millions of those people that voted, right, like were black, and and the the kind of measures that are taking are pretty marginal, right, like in terms of how many votes that's going to change, um, but there's this implotment of it that like. The par- you know, the president apparently like doesn't have any qualms about like just blasting out there, no matter how sort of non credible that is, um, and he's supported in it by, you know, like it, you have these studies by Brookings and so on. They make these claims, you know, they're kind of a hodgepodge of claims that, like, in practical terms, like, what does it actually add up to? In reality, you know. Uh, but there is all this energy within the echo chamber, right? Around like framing it as, you know, you know, Jim Crow. And uh, it, it, it's clearly not, it's clearly not within, you know, a thousand miles of it. Um, it is something to deal with. Uh, it is something to treat as a serious issue. But like when you, when you actually poll voters, right? Like 81% of non-white voters think that like it's more important to restrict voting right than to uh, like to ensure integrity of voting however you want to like describe it than to like expand it so like it's it's a it's a, it's an issue that most people don't perceive they have any difficulty voting and and therefore most people of all colors don't really perceive it as like a serious crisis and yet for some reason right like the policy apparatus because it is existing within its own sort of like woke echo chamber, like feels the need to do it, you know, and then they have a captive audience. They have one audience among like MSNBC, you know, viewers who, who buy into it, right? Like nobody else really takes it seriously. Like it, by necessity, you know, it resulted in defeat. Uh, but like along the way, like everybody got off all of this like incredible, you know, uh, this incredible rhetoric when really the thing that has to be addressed out of those three things urgently, right, like for 2024, is the kind of um, the remote yet real, and if it were to come true, actually existential danger to the republic, which is the, you know, the stuff that Trump is doing, like trying to kind of make it so that his partisans are in control of the vote, right? Like that's something that we want to stop and that for the most part, People who are participants in the Congress now, as it exists, right, like, including members of the GOP, have an interest in stopping, right? Like, because, like, the, the game is very profitable for them, and they wanted the game to continue. They don't want to risk an existential confrontation that could result in the destruction of Congress and civil war. And I, I don't think there's really anybody who wants to risk that. 
Um, and therefore, like, I don't think there's any reason to think that it's going to happen. Therefore, like, but, but on the other hand, like, we should be taking action to make sure that the laws are in place so that, like, that doesn't happen. And, and, and not taking that action makes it more likely. And so, like, rolling all of these things into this narrative of, like, a Jim Crow 2.0 makes it less likely that the thing that you're trying to fix is going to get fixed. So, um, so like, you know, to answer your question, what clearly seems to be an irrational rhetorical strategy um, is being pursued. I don't have a great answer for it, but my answer is it just seems to be the case that they are living in a progressive echo chamber where this kind of these kinds of appeals carry the day for them within those settings. And something is preventing them. You know, you have these kind of like democratic strategists going in the Times, talking to Thomas Edsel, being like, this is a cancer for our party. Like, and the, 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 but the reality is, is that even though people know that it's a cancer to their, you know, to their party and may actually result in defeat, the people who are bearers of this sensibility of this kind of like abolition, you know, fighting violence and oppression and all its guises, sensibility those people happen to be the the kind of backbone of the party not among its voters but the backbone of the people who actually staff like who, the people who like graduate hampshire college and then become right like democratic partisans who like go to work you know often for very little pay right in exchange for their ideological enthusiasms and their enthusiasms it turns out are strong enough that they just just by default, they make their way into the mouth of the president instead of like having any quality control, like between you know this like twenty-four year old, right, like blue-haired, whatever, right, and the president. There just is there. We we want to think that there is some uh, you know Carvalisk figure uh, that's gonna like kind of be like, hey guys, like let's dial it back for the American public, but there just doesn't seem to be that anymore. Well, yeah. all, all I can all I can think of is if the Democrats keep pursuing this, well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because what Wes, you you, uh, you tweeted in May like will Biden start referring to birthing people or people who menstruate and then like uh, like a, yep. like a, like a month later it actually <laughs> happened, right? Uh, it wasn't him, but it was it was it was in the budget and then the same thing, like, uh, you, you tweeted Willie he add pronouns to his bio, and then they had, like, you know, they celebrated National Pronoun, International Pronouns Day. Anyway, it, it, it happened. Uh, let, let, let's, um, uh, Grant, I thanks so much. I really appreciate it. We'll do one more. Uh, and I know it's been a long time, a, a lot already, but uh, let's see. Alan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks for having me on. Um, appreciate it. Um, I want to do just quickly in in response to the last speaker on the topic of uh basically trump supporters trying to get positions related to um vote administration or like uh, vote counting and stuff i'm friends with some people who are doing that and telling others to do that and the the, the thing is they absolutely do not view it as any sort of uh attempt to steal the vote they view it as a, re a reaction to a vote that they suspect was stolen. Um, so, like in 2020, there were many reports of things like ob observer, like party observers, being excluded from vote counting areas, or like told they have to stay like 100 feet away and they can only 
observed from like 100 feet away through glass and with COVID as the reason, blah, blah, blah. And, and they, view, they view that as basically um, allowing the local poll workers who essentially were perceived to be partisans on the left to count votes however they wanted with effectively no oversight. So they're, they don't view what they're doing as stealing. Um, it's not something that necessarily needs to be stopped. They're just trying to make sure that they have an active representation the way that the leftists do. So uh, that's just my perception. I wanted to share that just yeah. for a little balance there. Yeah. So we I have, have I have more to say too, but I just wanted to get that since it was contextually relevant. Sure. No. So we have this. We have this like mutual escalation, right? Where like yeah. both, where it's kind of like, well, we have to steal it to prevent it from being stolen, right? Um, and 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 the, the, and and you're getting that blasted out, right? Uh, you know, by liberals every day. And in response to that kind of messaging, right, like, you know, then, then there is this sense that, you know, so that there is this piece, you know, there's this kind of infamous piece in Time magazine where it was like, you know, the, the, the attempt to, like, save the election and prevent it from being stolen. And, you know, the person describes a kind of, like, coordination across, like, a whole range of, like, you know, public and private actors, you know, where, where you actually had people who were, uh, you know, in touch with, like, uh, you know, street protesters or even sort of, like, Antifa groups, right? Like, connected, you know, being coordinating with, like, CEOs of major corporations, like, all in this effort to, you know, in their view, ensure the integrity of the vote. And so, like, we all remember there was this period where everybody was, like, freaking out about, like, the, 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 the you know, Trump was going to corrupt the U.S. Postal Service, like, in order to prevent, like, mass voting. And then, Everybody realized that, like, if they sowed too much doubt about, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, vote by mail, then nobody's going to vote by mail. And so then they had to, like, immediately, then they had to, like, tamp down, like, like that kind of that conspiracy theory, you know, and, and, and the, the theory, you know, was based upon, you know, some actions that were taken, you know, mostly like sort of routine as part of, uh, as part of, like, reimagining the post office, right, like under Trump. And, and, but like, it was, perceived and framed for a while as like, oh, he's going to corrupt the post office. We can't trust the vote. And then, but then they realized that oh, we have, to, we have to have our people trust the vote. And, 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 and so like what all this represented, you know, in the minds of those who were observing it, you know, this kind of like expansion of to like universal vote as this COVID measure and so on and so forth. It was like, oh, we're saving the election. We're creating, but like, what are we also doing? Like we are, surely probably having some effect on the influence of the election and as partisan actors in the act of doing this, uh, you know, we are participating in, I'm not going to say rigging, I'm certainly not going to say stealing, but like, you know, uh, we, we are seeking to define what it means to ensure the integrity of this election in such a way that like, you know, will favor the result that we are seeking, right? Which is like the, the, the defeat of this cancer on the Republic, you know, which is President Trump. Um, and they're quite open about it. You know, like people saw it and that was the, that was, you know, and then on top of it, of course, you know, there was this kind of loss of institutional credibility, media credibility as a result of the Russiagate stuff. So like all of these things kind of like coalesce into this sense <laughs> That, like, you know, the, the election wasn't totally on the level and, you know, no evidence was ever presented that seemed remotely credible that, that, that the election was stolen. But, 
you know, this kind of general sense that, like, they played the game in a particular way in order to, you know, make the outcome that they were seeking more likely seems very reasonable. And so, as you're saying, like, I think most of the people and most of the legislatures are, that are taking this action, they think of themselves as ensuring the, the integrity of the election in much the same way that, like, all those private actors that boasted about it in Time magazine saw themselves as ensuring the integrity of the election. So it's like, well, we have to ensure the integrity of the election. We have to rig it to prevent it from being rigged. And, like, th that, there is that sense on both sides of it. And, you know, ultimately, I think the best outcome and the one that will avoid the crisis would be just to be like a very clear cut victory for someone in 2024. Uh, and, and I have a sense that if things go as they're going, that we may actually just get that clear cut victory in 2024. And, and then, and then, and that a lot, all of this stuff is going to end up being moot. I hope that happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, especially in the last five years or so, we've already seen what, even if you take Republicans out of the equation, just look at the, um, at the examples of the Iowa caucus, the New York City mayoral election or mayoral primary, um, right. the, uh, New Hampshire primary, um, that, you know, we, we, we have a problem with uh you know doing elections in a way that's confidence inspiring in this country so on the one hand i, I would say that even if it, it remains a state by state um situation i hope i really hope they come up with a a method soon that is less uh disastrous than the last couple of election cycles have been because, you know, nobody believes in, in election results anymore. Uh, and again, that's, that's even taking Trump out of it. Uh, you know, after, after Iowa, did, how many Sanders people did you talk to who, who really believe that, that, you know, that there was any integrity in that system? Uh, but the other thing is, you know, I, I, I think the larger question and and again, this is, this was the reason that I wanted to talk to you today, Wesley. Was it's just, uh, you know, they focused a lot on, you know, the Voter Rights Act, which to me is just a continuation of of their continual obsession with stuff that matters to people who kind of live in Washington, like these sort of political questions, whether it's. Russiagate or, um, you know, international pronouns, they, whatever, like it's, it's not, um, it's not the kind of paycheck, you know, kitchen table issues that are going to win them elections, um, in a big way. And we're seeing these massive defections and I just think they don't have, there, no, there no longer is a, um, a James Carville, type figure even in the democratic party anymore. I mean, I, I, I just don't get the sense that that's even a consideration with them. I, I think, I think all the, all they think about is how to beat the Republicans politically in the infighting game. Um, but you know, that's, that's not how you, <laughs> you, you still got to win elections in this country. And, 
I don't know. I mean, this is my last question. You do you get any? Do you get a sense that they're actually thinking about that in an organized way? I mean, you know, you, you get these people who give interviews. Uh, you know, like uh, David. Uh, you know, David Shore and so on. Right. Right. The data, and uh, and you know, they they get play. You know, in some parts of the media, and there definitely are people whose job is to like, you know, win elections who have to, uh, who have to think about these things. But, um, but the kind of, no, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> party, the party itself. And, and this is why Biden was such a good test case, right? Because, because he was right. This kind of, you know, figure from the past and who won by virtue of that. Right. And so I what and so I have I've, I've, tw- I've tweeted and retweeted a few times, the, you know, you know, après moi le déluge, right? Like what what succeeds Biden? Because, of course, Biden, you know, for, for various reasons having to do with the the kind of incommensurability of the various parts of the Democratic coalition, I, I think it's fair to say. Right. Like that's why the the major legislative, you know, initiatives you know, ended up being stymied, um, uh, you know, but, but there was this kind of, you know, this legacy figurehead, uh, you know, figure that could, that could get, that could give them an electoral victory. And, and so like, you know, where will the next electoral victory come from? And, and we already have this kind of, you know, wild speculation about the return of Hillary, the, uh, or Buttigieg versus Harris, or whatever it is. Or, oh, or, or uh, Liz, uh, Lynn Cheney, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, um, running alongside, you know, Lynn Cheney. Um, th- that just exposes the, you know, the utter vacuum, right? Of the, and 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 then and then of course in in Buttigieg and Harris, you know, we have these kind of perfect specimens of, and you know, like. Watching the sort of emergence of Buddhists really kind of uh, it, 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 it gave me like a retroactive perspective on Obama, right? Like like Obama obviously was a much you know much more intelligent and interesting figure in in every way, but he sort of you know like he sort of like was created ex nihilo, right? Like by 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 the media, and then eventually you know he had the juice and was enough of an order and as enough of a charismatic figure to like carry it to fruition. Um, but, but I, I, I do remember the kind of, they did it. They, they do these videos about the biography and you saw the kind of, you saw the kind of emptiness, right? Like in Obama's life, right? It was just like, Oh, my single mother, you know, she made me do my homework. And, and there wasn't like a world there, right? Until he sort of enters the world of African-American life uh, which he really was not a part of, right? Like, had to sort of, like, assimilate himself into it through, like, marrying Michelle Obama. And, and so he's this kind of, like, outsider figure, right, that, 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 you know, had these certain characteristics. And then, you know, and that he was this kind of, he kind of, you know, was manufactured out of nothing, right? Like, through the media. It still had the power and the authority to do that, and that people trusted it, and then he himself was enough of a figure. It was like Buddhists, right? Like, come on, Right. I mean, Buttigieg, is, yeah, it's an interesting comparison because if you if you see him in person, I mean, he, no, I mean, he, he he's he's good. Like as, as politicians go, he's not terrible. Like he he knows how to 
he's he's impressive on the stump and everything like that. But they they couldn't, you know, they did they did the the beatific New York Magazine cover. They did the Time Magazine first family cover. It, it just didn't sell. Like like the the reaction, it didn't move the needle at all. You know, and it was the same thing with Kamala. It was the or Kamala. It was like you you couldn't get the public more than two or three percent interested in these people. So, what does that tell you? I mean, I think it's part part of it. You're right. Is on. I think the, the first black president is meaningful, and then like the first X, whatever it happens to be, is not meaningful, right? Like, right. Maybe, you know, like like maybe like the first like Nikki Haley, whatever. Like that'll be meaningful. Like the first woman president. But like, yeah, like these these other kind of like tertiary mix in the first Asian American slash black female president. Like, I don't think the public is just like not going down that waterfall that like, you know, the the kind of the the, the class that sort of, you know, attempts to manufacture these things has has already gone down. And, I you know, I think that the public's, you know, especially given, you know, the reality of you know, Kamala's political skills, right? Like the the public is right in that judgment, right? Like this is this is not a person that's going to be able to you know to like answer questions in a credible way, right? Like, yeah, I I remember the first time I saw her in public uh, early in in the twenty, I guess it was twenty nineteen, and I thought <laughs> this is. Any reporter who looks who, who looks at this candidate and thinks this is going to work is like is 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 high, you know. Uh, but beyond that, like they were they were they were really flooring it in terms of trying to sell it to the public, and it, there was no response. So it's both the party and the media have lost the juice to kind of get people across the the finish line to vote. Um, which I think is a, a frightening prospect for for the party. But anyway, Wesley, I, I feel bad. I, I kept you on for almost uh, an, uh, you know an hour and a half now. Um, do you have any last thoughts, or do you need to need to run? Or uh, no, no. This this has been fun, and uh, I'm just going to plug myself. Uh, oh yes, plug plug absolutely. So I have a Substack. It's called uh, Year Zero. It's WesleyYang.substack.com, and. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm just about to get a lot more prolific on it. So the, excellent. The, excellent. Uh, getting a free subscription. And if you like what you see, becoming a paid subscriber and read and read the souls of yellow folk. Also excellent yep. book. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and check out his Twitter. Like you're one of my favorite Twitter feeds. Always interesting. Like it's something, you know, sometimes counterintuitive, but always funny. So, uh, Check it out, and thanks so, so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it, and thanks to everybody who uh, who turned out. Seconded. Uh, Wes, right. I love your Twitter feed. Sounds like we're out of time. I was hoping to ask uh, a question that I had here, but um, if okay, uh, uh, all right. Well, well I guess we got to go. All right, thanks very much, Wes. Appreciate it, and uh, thanks to everybody who for for coming out. Okay, bye bye. Take, take care. Bye bye.